Welcome to the National Capital Bible Church. We are back together again. Let's pause for a moment of silence and confess any known sins so that we could get back into fellowship with God if we need to. 1 John 1 9 says that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So let's pause for a moment of silence and then in a moment I'll open in prayer. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity for us to assemble once again to study your word and the key doctrines that are contained in the field manual as per Pastor Gene Cunningham. Pray now that you would help us to focus on the information and, of course, if there's anything vying for our attention, I pray we'll be disciplined enough to lay those aside so that we can focus on the information tonight and thereby grow so that we can advance to spiritual maturity. We ask and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, you should have one of these little booklets, and if not, I think we've, we're getting some more ordered, and we do have a PDF version as well, but I did not bring it, uh, but I can email it to you if need be, or you can go to their website at basictrainingbible.org, and you could download it as well, and have a copy for your phone, your computer, your laptop. Okay, we got nine online. That's great, including myself. That's ten. All right, we're going to go back to page two because I wanted to um, address something here. I know we're going through abiding, and then we're going to move over to ambassadorship. So page two, if you will, I'd like us to see something here, abiding or absolute thinking. Right here on page 2, on the bottom, you'll notice that uh, Pastor Gene mentions, earthly problems are temporal and variable, but divine solutions are absolute. Is that true? What does absolute mean? Unchangeable. Very good. So it's fixed, unchangeable. What are some examples of uh, absolutes? God's proof or truth. Okay, what else? All his characteristics. These are absolutes. Beliefs are truths that are unchanging, indisputable, not subject to variation. These are what's called biblical absolutes. And I just wanted to highlight that because as we move on, we're going to go through the rest of this chapter here, or this section. You notice, uh, remember we looked at uh, the bottom of page uh, two, where he mentions earthly problems are temporal and variable, meaning they change from time to time, but divine solutions are absolute. And he cites Genesis 50, verse 20, and Rick helped us out last week, how we recalled how Joseph said to his family, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. And so this idea of God's absolute standard, his provisions come out as we have the word of God stored up inside. That's how Joseph can say to his family, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You can't say that on the human realm unless you are familiar with God's word, right? So I think that's very important because you can't 
this can't be accomplished on human strength at all. So now, three. Romans 8.28, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God or abide. There's that word abide again. And are called according to his purpose. And the author says, loneliness, emptiness, weakness, helplessness, failure, defeat, scorn, contempt, all bid us abide in him. They're all calling out to abide in Christ. We pay the price for not abiding, the author says. The pain of defeat, shame of sin, remind us of the price of not abiding. It goes on on point number seven. The only time Jesus Christ is at home in us is when we abide in him. Oh, 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 wait a minute. Who's abiding in who? Okay, I and him, him and I. So that's referring to who? Okay. Is it the Holy Spirit abiding in us or are we abiding in Christ? Or is the Holy Spirit in us, indwelling us? Right? That's the Holy Spirit. But look at what it says in Ephesians 3.16. That he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, absolute provisions to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may what? So who's the one dwelling in the believer? Is it Christ or the Holy Spirit? What's that, Mike? Christ? Okay. According to this verse, it's Christ. But who indwells us? Holy Spirit or Christ? Both? Only those two? Maybe all three? Maybe. That's no longer an absolute. Well, we're going to look at some verses here. But what I wanted you to see is how Pastor Gene frames this in Ephesians 3. Pulling from Paul's letter to Ephesians. And he says here, he cites what Paul says. To be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. So now there's this indwelling of Christ in the inner man so that Christ may dwell or be at home in your hearts through faith. So now I want you to see, we're familiar with the word abide, right? It comes from that Greek word meno. Right, Mike? Is that correct? But this word here in Ephesians 3.16 is a little different. It's no longer meno. It's the word katoikeo. Christ may dwell or be at home in your hearts. Katoikeo as opposed to meno. In John 15, there's an imperative in verse 4. Abide in me. Let's turn there. John chapter 15. This word is meno. John 15, 4. It's an imperative, which means it's not optional. We are commanded to abide. John 15, 4. Whoever gets it, could you kindly read it? John 15, 4. Okay, so there's the idea that it's us abiding in who? Us abiding in Christ. So now we have katoikeo in Ephesians, where now it's Christ making his home in the life of the believer. 
Now, what happens if we don't meno? What if we don't abide in Christ? What do we call that? Out of fellowship. Very good. What do we call that as well? It's an S word. Sin. Now, when we're in sin and we're out of fellowship, what does that do with our relationship to God, the Holy Spirit? Fellowship is cut, right? So when the fellowship has been cut, we also call that what? There's two imperatives, two negatives against the Holy Spirit. We're not supposed to, starts with a G, grieve, and the other one's Q, quench. So when we do, what happens to the believer? They have no no power. No enabling power of God the Holy Spirit. So when they don't have any enabling power of God the Holy Spirit, they're not able to be productive. They can't produce fruit. But then when we bring it back to Ephesians 3, look at what he says here. That he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. Absolute provision. That's all. We, we all need that. Absolute provisions to be strengthened with power through who? His spirit in the inner man, in the individual, so that Christ may dwell or be at home in your hearts. So what happens when God the Holy Spirit is grieved? We also lose, lose out on the fact that Jesus Christ will no longer feel at home or be dwelling, indwelling the believer in Christ. We're, we're losing out on two persons of the Trinity. Think about that. We've been covering this year phase two salvation. If we don't know certain things, we lack the power. Remember that? The entire year I've been saying we lack the power, lack the power. We keep confessing the sins, fine. But how many of us knew that if we are not abiding, because that's not optional, that's a direct command, we no longer have the influence of God, the Holy Spirit, but we take it to Ephesians 3, we don't have Christ indwelling us either. He's still in us. But we lack the power that could have been ours in the inner man. So now we're lost. We lose out in two sources of power. God, the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ. Let's look at one other person. Who's the other person that fulfills the triune Godhead? God. God the Father. Let's look at some verses here. Um, John 14, 23. Who has their Bible? John 14, 23. John 14, 23. We're going to look at verses that relate to the Father now. Okay, so we, referring to God the Father, God the Son. So the Father and Son will come and make our home with you or them, depending on the translation. So we're seeing now that anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. Who's teaching? Jesus Christ. So if you obey my teaching, my Father will then love them. I thought he loves us. So what if we don't obey Jesus? Does he therefore no longer love us? What is he trying to say here? Let me read it one more time. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. Similar to what we're seeing in Ephesians. There's this comfortability of God the Father and God the Son. 
If we cooperate with God the Father or listen to the teaching of God the Son and make application to it, we're told in John 14, 23, that we, Father and Son, we will come to them and make our home with them. Do you believe the Father and the Son will provide power? Yes. So God the Father, God the Son is another power source aside from God the Holy Spirit. So we nullify the enablement or empowerment of the Father and the Son when we what? We fail to obey. Obey who though? Jesus. So if we didn't know that, how often have we been losing out on the potential power that could have come from the Father and the Son? Because we're so quick to say, well, First uh, John 1 John 1.9, First John 1 John 1.9, so that we recover the filling ministry of who? God, the Holy Spirit. What about the Son and the Father? How do we tap into the power from the Father and the Son? Obey the teachings of Christ. Because if not, they won't make their home with us. And what happens when we, we don't have them making their home in us? Well, if we look at Ephesians 3... The absolute provisions will be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell or be at home in your hearts through faith. The inner man is where the soul is. That's where we, our real issues are, right? We, when we're down, discouraged, depressed, angry, it's residing in the inner man. And that's where God the Father and God the Son takes residence if we cooperate with his word. But if we don't even know this, not only do we short-circuit God the Holy Spirit, but we short-circuit God the Father as well as God the Son, taken from Ephesians 3. How about 1 Corinthians 3.16? We saw John 14.23. How about 1 Corinthians 3.16? Referring to the Father. So whose temple? God's temple. Do you not know that yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? Depending on the translation, but that's basically, it's the essence. You, we are God's temple, not just God the Holy Spirit. Do you not know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? But when you look at 1 Corinthians 3.16, it's clear that we are God's temple. Let's look at one more with regards to the Father, so that we can move through this book here. 1 John 4.15. 1 John 4.15. What does it say in 1 John 4.15? Towards the back, right before Revelation, after James. Okay, let's try to make sense out of that. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God... God abides in him and he in God. Look at that. What do we have to do? Verse 15. Confess what though? How often do you confess that Jesus is the Son of God? When you're with others. I mean, we don't have to say that robotically at home after you're eating a sandwich. Or something. Right. Based on his title. Very good. So this is something that I think we need to, to see as we're pulling these verses together. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Because 
because of Ephesians 3, 16 and 17, I think it's important to know that the power comes from not only God the Holy Spirit, but also God the Father and God the Son. There's this idea of them dwelling in us, making their home resident in us, in the inner man. So again, in verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him. Uh, Good question. So phase one? Okay, so you think verse 15 is more of a phase one justification? Um, I can certainly see that. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him. But also there's this idea as we're making a stand for God as believers. There's this idea that there's this ongoing fellowship with God as we make a stand, as we confess Jesus as as Lord. So there's that reciprocal relationship with God the Father, God the Son, as we're making a stand, because the truth is, we don't always make a stand. There's We're at work, and someone says, Scott, hey, uh, are you into church, man? We're Marines here. Vanessa, are you really into that stuff? I mean, what do you do on Sundays? We're all going to hang out. Let's, Let's go do something. But if we don't, make a stand and confess Jesus as Lord. I mean, I'm not saying bring a Bible and beat them up over the head. Maybe only in the Good News Club, right there? But we should make a stand and confess him as Lord. Not necessarily like beating them up with a Bible, but just making a stand. Making a stand for him. So it can be a phase one justification passage. But First John is written to ensure and strengthen fellowship among the believers. It's a fellowship book. It's not really a uh, salvific book. There are sections in here, I think, in First John chapter 5. But this is laced with a lot of fellowship um, verses. Let, let's say, for, for example, uh, Scott, can you read verse 15, please? First. Uh, uh, John chapter 3, verse 15. Okay, so how do we make sense out of that? Verse 15, whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Is it possible to murder someone and still have everlasting life? Or do you lose it? You don't lose it. Okay, I agree. So how do, how do we make sense of this? Whoever abides or whoever hates his brother is a murderer. Is that true? Hate is equivalent to murdering someone? Is that what it says in Matthew chapter 5? Whoever says to his brother without a cause, is angry with his brother without a cause, he's guilty of... Right? Whoever looks at a woman in lust, there's this whole thing of perspective, right? So now what about this? How do we how do we not hate someone? Whoever hates his brother is a murderer and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. How the heck do we make sense of that? Well, we have to go to chap or chapter 5 verse 20. Darren, could you read that please? Chapter 5 of First John, verse 20. Yeah. This will kind of coincide with the whole thing of what Scott was saying about 
making a stand for Christ and so on. He is the true God and eternal life. So when we look at back to verse uh, chapter 3 of verse 15, the idea here, let me read it carefully, um, whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So when you look at 520, Christ is equivalent to eternal life, right? So it's the idea of, it's equivalent to saying that he does not have Christ abiding in him at that moment. So there's broken fellowship. He's not cooperating as someone who loves his brother, and therefore that's not a manifestation of the abiding life of Jesus Christ in him. So if if I'm going around murdering people, would you not agree that that's not that does not display my relationship with Christ in a harmonious fashion, right? I'm out of fellowship. Would you say, Vanessa? It, right, it doesn't look like that, right, Scott? I mean, if I'm murdering people outside, that does not display my wholesome, vibrant relationship to Christ. And so when you connect this verse, chapter 3, verse 15, to chapter 5, verse 20, He's be, Jesus Christ is equal to eternal life. And so my relationship with Jesus Christ is not where it's supposed to be when I'm hating people, when I'm murdering people, right? So the idea here is whoever, abide, whoever hates his brother is equal to a murderer. And so the idea here is that that's not a lifestyle of someone who is showing a, a fellowship-like relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the opposite. So if I'm hating my brother, if I'm I'm not getting along with Darren and I'm hating him, that doesn't display a good relationship between me and Christ. Right? That's me hating my brother, and that's not reflective of an ongoing relationship, familial, strong fellowship with Christ. Does that make sense? Judy, Jerry, does that? Okay. I just want to make sure Jerry's... uh, Okay with that. But so the idea here is the relationship we have with Christ should be reflected upon how we treat each other. And if I, if we're hating each other, that's a poor display of our relationship to Christ. That's what I'm seeing here in chapter 3 and chapter 5 when you connect them together. And I brought this out because when you look at again, back at Ephesians 3 and page 3, it's this whole idea of having this relationship with Christ dwelling us as a result of this inner man that's strengthened through the Holy Spirit. And we're seeing that there's this, what's the word that I was using earlier? The meno or the relationship, the indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit with, we were, Contrasting John 15 and one second here. Oh, katoi keo, the the word here for dwelling, to, that Christ may dwell. Katoi keo versus meno. Big difference between the two. Christ is dwelling in dwelling in the believer here. He's making his home here in Ephesians 3, as opposed to John 15, where we're told to abide in what? His 
his word. There's a difference between the two. So if we're not cooperating with John 15, then we negate Ephesians 3. Jesus Christ will not be comfortable indwelling or making his home in the life of the believer. We're out of fellowship in John 15, so it negates Ephesians 3. We're not, he's not feeling welcome. He's not welcome in our, in our hearts, in our souls as a result of sin. I know I was around, going around in a bush here, so let me move on to the next page here. My page is stuck, Scott. Well, let me just go to from the book then. We on page three. Let's turn to page four. Ambassadorship. This is where we were supposed to start, anyways, tonight. So the author talks about how an ambassador does not appoint himself. Uh, we are appointed by Christ as per 2 Corinthians 5, 18 to 20. And then an ambassador does not support himself because God supplies all of our needs. Ephesians 1, 3, Philippians 4, 19. Now, I think I mentioned this about two months ago. Some of you are old enough to remember Charlie's Angels. Remember that? Charlie's Angels, um, what was the name of the guy who was the boss? Do you remember that? Bosley? Okay. You know, the interesting thing about Charlie's Angels is that they never saw Bosley. Remember that? They never saw? Huh? Oh, it's Charlie. Okay. They never saw Charlie. Very good. Thank you, Debbie. They never saw Charlie, and likewise, we never saw God. So if Charlie can get his three angels to do his work, we should be able to do his work as well. That's the whole idea of being an ambassador. Although we've never met Jesus Christ ourselves, we will later on. But the idea here is when we're going through this, an ambassador is not a citizen of the country where he is sent. We are citizens of heaven, Philippians 3.20. So he sent us. An ambassador has instructions in written form, which is found in the Word of God, as per 2 Timothy 3.16. An ambassador cannot take insults personally. That sometimes is the, the reality of life when we're sharing. He is accepted or rejected, not in his own merit, but because of who he represents. We represent the Lord Jesus Christ, and so many times we'll be rejected or embarrassed or ridiculed and that's just how it is if they hate me they will hate you as well number six an ambassador does not enter a country to profit himself we're on earth to serve the lord second corinthians 5 15 and number seven an ambassador is a personal representative of someone else everything he does and says reflects on the one who sent him we're representatives of the Lord Jesus Christ by action as well as by word, as John 13.35 says and John 17.23. Number eight, an ambassador's perspective is service. His prospect is reward. We're commissioned for service, top of page five, and we will be re- rewarded in time, Matthew 5.12, 2 John 1.8, as well as Revelation 22.12. An ambassador is recalled when war is declared. The recall of all believers at the rapture of the church 
will announce the beginning of the end for Satan. And that's, I appreciate what he says there because as we're, as we know, the church is going to escape the wrath that's forthcoming during the tribulation. And so I like how he puts this on number nine, that we will be recalled at the rapture of the church will be announced at the beginning of the end for Satan. Now he goes on to talk about the available people, and he starts by mentioning Moses. Uh, Numbers 12.3, Hebrews 11.25-26. To, to Moses, availability meant self-denial and great hardship to accomplish the plan of God. And then he uh, mentions number two, David, Second Samuel 16.11, as well as 1 Samuel 16.13 and 17.37. In the battle with Goliath, there was only one person available for the fight, the man David. What, na- what made David so great? The fact that he stepped out of the multitude of warriors and said, I'll be the one. And any other person could have stepped forward and accomplished the task, but David made the voluntary decision to be available. Elijah, 1 Kings 17, 2-3, as well as 8-9. through Elijah is considered by many the greatest prophet of the Jews. What made him great? He followed instructions. God told him to go to the brook of Cherith, and he went to the brook of Cherith. God told him to go to Zarephath, and he went to Zarephath. No argument, no complaint. He just obeyed. He was available. Then we have in Isaiah 6.8, Isaiah himself, the great statement of Isaiah's availability was so simple. Here I am. Here am I. Send me. And Esther 4.16. Esther was one of the great ladies of the Old Testament. She faced something that could have meant her death, And she said, if I perish, I perish. If I die, I die. I'm willing. All of these people have one thing in common. I am willing. Send me. That's the whole idea here. Mary. When Mary was told that she, a virgin, would bear a child, she said, behold, the bondservant of the Lord, be it done to me according to what? Your your word. Whatever your word says. She would face slander and maligning but she was willing to pay the price. Then in Paul, 2 Timothy 4.16, though at his last trial everyone deserted him, Paul remained available to God. Throughout his ministry, Paul had poured out his life for the people to whom he took the gospel. You find this in 1 Thessalonians 2.8. And because all along the line he had made decisions for service, he knew at the end that reward was waiting. So that kept him motivated. He kept on pressing on, moving forward. He did not look back at all. And Pastor Gene talks about the raw material. A five-pound bag of iron made into horseshoe nails is worth about $5.50. Made into needles, bottom of page six, it is worth $3,000. Made into mainsprings for watches, it is worth $250,000. We are raw materials in the hands of God. What will be our worth in heaven? The answer depends on how much refining we allow God to do in our lives on earth. So who's willing? 
was ready to go. Well, I, I like how the author highlights available people because really we have to ask ourselves the question too. Are we available? As a church, as a local ministry, are we available? We sometimes talk about growing the church, doing this, doing that. But the truth is, it starts with our, it starts with us. The goal isn't just growing the church. The goal is growing our souls in the word of God. To grow spiritually so that in the end, we will be available people. We will advance. Because as we get into the word, as we get transformed through the renewing of his word, then it impacts and influences us for better decisions in life, which ultimately will bring him honor and glory. So available people, and then next week we will look into biblical spirituality on page 7. So this is where we will conclude for tonight, spirituality, page 7. We'll pick this up next week. And for now, let's close in a word of prayer, and then I'll see you next week. Father, thank you as always for giving us the opportunity to examine your word. We know how important it is to make adjustments in our lives, not just to learn these things in an academic sense, but to actually apply these things in life uh, to ourselves so that we can impact others and ultimately bring you honor and glory by everything we say, think, and do. We ask now, Lord, that you would go before us and keep us safe as we commute home. And for those online who've joined us, I pray that you would just uh, allow them to benefit from our time together as well and that even if there's just one kernel of truth that they were able to to uh, pick up i pray that they would uh, make it applicable in their life and we ask all of these things in christ's name amen